Shortly after the start of the Reformation, Martin Luther found himself with a second adversary in addition to the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the Radical Reformers. The Radical Reformers introduced a new kind of legalism. They demanded adherence to the most rigorous readings of Christ's teachings, saying the Beatitudes taught Christians couldn't serve in the military or as judges. Very soon, Luther found himself in the middle of a fight between both the medieval Roman Catholic view that the Beatitudes were only for the most holy Christians and the radical view that the Beatitudes were laws for all Christians to give up everything. Luther has a solution. It's the development of two kingdoms doctrine, roughly outlined in his commentary on the Beatitudes. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yagley, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. Today we're going to look at Luther's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Although what we are looking at from volume 21 of Luther's works wasn't actually written by Luther, it was a compilation of sermons he gave on Wednesday evenings. The local pastor at his church in Wittenberg, Johannes Bugenhagen, was called away for Reformation business to go to different cities and help bring about reforms of their church structure. Now, when you think about how much work Luther was going through with this, it's not, it's not surprising that he wasn't actually able to write this out himself. You know, he, was, he was giving sermons every Sunday, giving sermons every Wednesday. And, you know, he also did Saturday. So he did this sermon series on Wednesday nights of Matthew, and that's where we get the Sermon on the Mount. And then he was preaching on Saturday nights from the Gospel of John. Wow. Wow. And then, then he was also doing couples counseling. And he had new kids. He had he he was you know, I think he was he had like he had six kids between fifteen twenty six and fifteen thirty four. Unbelievable. And so as Luther is preaching on Wednesday nights, there are people that are writing down his sermons. So you know, Luther did at least he wrote an approval for this, and his approval is noted by the preface. Right. So he writes an introductory set of comments to the published book. So, but there's there are a handful of scholars who think that this may not exactly reflect Luther's thoughts at the time, but that's they're really a minority opinion. One interesting thing is it was published uh, three times over quickly the first year, and the third edition has some variation from the first two, toning down some of his language. Now, volume twenty-one, Luther's works, what we're kind of reading from. Um, largely is going from the first publication, uh, and then, but occasionally will in the footnotes show some of the variata and the additions. And I've thought as we read this, I don't know if you noticed, but the way he describes the audience that Jesus is preaching to on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and he'll yeah. call them the Jews. Right. And he'll say about the different things that Jesus is attacking about the Jews' beliefs. And I've thought as he's writing, preaching that, is he in his mind, thinking about the Jews of 1530 to 1532? Or is he thinking about the Jews that were listening to Jesus? And, you know, kind of when we do that, we sometimes we'll talk about the Israelites. Right, right. And we'll kind of make that distinction of the biblical time versus our present time. But in Luther's text, he just says the Jews. So I, I sometimes wonder if in the third edition that's got some toned down language, if that's where it gets toned down. Or could it be as he's describing uh, the Roman Catholic Church? Because you've got a quote about in his preface. Now, this is from what Luther wrote, not what someone was writing about his 
sermon, (laughs) he goes about the fifth chapter. He's talking about the fifth chapter of Matthew. He says, this fifth chapter has fallen into the hands of the vulgar pigs and asses, the jurists and the sophists, the right hand of the jackass of a pope and his mamelucks. Out of this beautiful rose, they have sucked and broadcast poison, covering up Christ with it and elevating and maintaining the Antichrist. Maybe instead of the conversation about the Jews, it's this language about the jackass of a pope that he's toning down. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. He always seemed pretty happy to go with that. That's he does. <laughs> so <laughs> Luther's preaching this sermon series on Wednesday nights. He's preaching on St. John's Gospel on Saturday nights. And then he's going through the what nowadays we call the historic one-year lectionary. We add the word historic because we also have a three-year lectionary, although at his time period... It wasn't historic. It just was what it was. And he is writing um, or preaching off of all of Matthew, but all we've got in Luther's works is chapters 5, 6, and 7. And there's some speculation that maybe these were put in a nice package because it's all in the Sermon on the Mount, or maybe he started this sermon series on Matthew, and then Bugenhagen arrives back, and he doesn't ever finish the sermon series. That, that could be. We that actually be. don't know. Well, it's funny, you know, because he, he, you just read where he really attacked the Roman Catholic Church. But he, he had equal problems with the radical reformers. Yes. And, and it's not, he's not quite as, as, as quotable in his attacks on the, uh, I don't think he called them jackasses or anything like no. that. But, but it's, he still had huge, and, and so he, he talks about how, how you know, and he has problems with the Radical Reformation who claim that the Beatitudes mean that Christians cannot own property, for example. Uh, they can't hold government offices, and they can't protect themselves if they're attacked. And Luther had real, real problems with this. And so he is preaching in this Sermon on the Mount, I think, a very practical way of how to read these very hyperbolic statements from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to go through the Beatitudes. Um, And so the reason he's preaching, as we said in the introduction, is that the medieval Roman Catholic Church had essentially said, uh, your ordinary Christian just can kind of live ordinary. But if you want to be a really good Christian, but only some can do this, then you do the Beatitudes. Right. And then you had the radical reformer saying, if you are truly a Christian, if you are a true believer then you and do everything that is to the extreme of the Beatitudes. And between these two, Luther's highlighting a middle road. And that's where the two kingdoms come from. So let's, let's quickly define the two kingdoms. So you got the kingdom of the sword. So the kingdom of the sword are all those who are in a positions of authority, especially the government. They are placed there by God to keep order. So in the kingdom of the sword, sometimes we'll call that the kingdom of the left hand. Um, and it is the kingdom by which God preserves, protects, and cares for the world that we live in. And then we have the kingdom of the spirit. Known as the kingdom of the right. And that's the, 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 the kingdom of the spirit is the church. And that was put in place by God to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. One of the ways I remember the kingdom of the right is when I want to welcome someone I shake with my right hand. Oh, there you it's go. It's a greeting. It's a welcome. It's an entrance. We find entrance into the kingdom of heaven through the kingdom of the spirit where we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you read a lot of Luther, you'll see the two kingdoms doctrine peppered throughout his writings. So there is no real perfect summary where he goes into the two kingdoms. And But this is, this is as 
good as I know of. And it's in the context of Scripture. So he's as he's writing about Scripture, he's then spinning forward into how this affects our daily lives with a lot of rhetorical questions where he'll kind of almost create a straw man. Does this mean I do this? And then he shows no. Does it mean I do this? No. And so by showing the extremes, he's not actually talking about a, a non-knowable straw man. It's actually the Roman Catholic Church. Or the radical reformers. Exactly. He's he's he, those straw men that he's he's setting up are are existing ideas, ways of approaching the Beatitudes that he tears apart. So let's before we get started. Um, the so there are eight Beatitudes in in uh, so in Matthew chapter five, Matthew as you go kind of five. one through fourteen, you got the Beatitudes there, and that's um, in volume twenty one. This is going to cover. Um, kind of page seven to about page 60, page 70. So it's about 70 pages. Um, but he continues on this whole Sermon on the Mount, chapters five, six, and seven. And the whole thing covers about 285 pages in volume 21. And volume, if you're going to buy Luther's work, <laughs> Mike Yeagley <laughs> would love if you bought volume 21. Because besides the Sermon on the Mount, Mike, what else is in volume 21? Uh, uh, right there, right after the Sermon on the Mount is the Magnificat. Luther's commentary on the Magnificat, which is my favorite. Something Mike reads every year. Um, he'll share it uh, with others, encourage them to read it, because it's Luther's advice on what it means to live a humble life. I sometimes think of his interpretation of the Magnificat is, um, is a writing also on Micah 6, 8, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with the Lord. Yeah. I, so if you're going to buy one, 21 is a great place to start. Great place to start. So Luther writes, I have said before that these eight items, those beatitudes, are nothing but instruction about the fruits and good works of a Christian. Before these must come faith as the tree and chief part or summary of a man's righteousness and blessedness without any work or merit of his, out of which faith these items all must grow and follow. Therefore, take this in the sense of outward righteousness before the world, which we maintain in our relations with each other. So he's writing the commentary, the sermons that he has on the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of when you are rooted, when you are solidly uh, built up into the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, this is what life looks like. And what, it's going to be important to go through this because uh, keep that in mind. And Luther will be returning to it later and as we get into this, where he says, okay, yeah, this one talks about this, and but you have to remember this is this is a work that comes out of faith, and so he'll be he'll be talking about that. And we'll we'll come back to that that little quote uh, in the future. Jeff Gibbs' commentary on Matthew that he has done for the Concordia commentary series uh, talks about the Beatitudes have a door. You enter through the wrong door and the Beatitudes become legalism and they become things that fill you with a sense of guilt that you can't do enough. And that's the doorway of if I do these things, I will be a better Christian. He said that's the wrong door. The right door to go through is the door of humility. You go through this knowing I can't do anything on my own, but let me see what life looks like when I do it with Christ. Perfect. And that's exactly what Luther is saying here. It starts with that humility of faith. And then it builds into this. And you can just sort of, you know, this is what the fruit of faith looks like. So let's start with the, the first one. Blessed are the spiritually poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
So according to Luther, Christ chose to include the word poor here to attack the Jewish view that if a man is successful here on earth, he is blessed and well off. And this was in the introductory. I was talking about how that third edition maybe tones down things. And Luther will quite a bit talk about the audience that Jesus is preaching to. And that's the Jews. Yeah. And and for me, I really, I know that later Luther, uh, you know. He got really bad. With he'll that. get really bad in the 1540s. I think earnestly he's here talking about that first century Pharisee legalistic environment that Jesus is preaching to. Yeah, absolutely. When you read some of his writings from the same era about, uh, about proclaiming Christ to the Jewish people, He's very open. He's very, you know. He, this he, is why he's been given the gospel to go and preach it. Yeah, and he's he's he understands. Not everybody's going to go. Just like in the uh, the rest of society, not everybody's going to go for it, and that's okay. So he writes at length about preaching to the Jewish community and what to expect from that, and he's very humble and he's not expecting a lot. But later in his life, he got pretty pretty nasty with that. So, so but, let's look at what he has here, though, and, and not get too far off on the tangent of uh, what he writes later. And so this idea that the commentary in the poor is to attack those that think that success here on earth is everything. So that's a lot like today's prosperity gospel. If you're that all God from, will bless his children. Just name it, claim it. And you will know that you are a true believer if you start to receive these riches. So if God doesn't bless his children with physical, with riches, Luther asks, what, must all Christians then be poor? Dare none of them have money, property, popularity, power, and the like? So here's a straw man, which in fact will show both the medieval Roman Catholic view of the the beggar, mendicant, monk who is... And even the radical reformers. And then also showing the radical reformers who are essentially calling for this radical change of external life to show the internal change you also have. So Luther answers his own question. He says, no, having money, property, honor, power, land, and servants belongs to the secular realm. Without these, it could not endure. Therefore, a lord or prince should not and cannot be poor because for his office and station, he must have all sorts of goods like these. And the noble, the prince he's writing that should not be poor and should have all these things, isn't just so that they can have extravagant wealth, but in fact, they need these resources to care for the people God has placed in their charge. If everyone is poor, no one is equipped to care for the other. And he's specifically talking about leadership. He says, you know, people in positions of leadership are placed there by God and they need those resources to enforce order in society. So this quote about Christian leaders then kind of fits in with what you're describing. Luther said that if Christians had to give up all money, power, and prestige, there would be no Christian leaders in the land and all would be worse off. So then he, he, he pivots and he starts talking about the word spiritually. Christ said spiritually poor. And Luther says, so be rich or poor physically and externally as as it is granted to you. God does not ask about this and know that before God in his heart, everyone must be spiritually poor. That is, he must not set his confidence, comfort, and trust on temporal goods, nor hang his heart upon them and make mammon his idol. And that mammon is referring to that that sense of the manna, the bread from heaven in, in the wilderness of Exodus. So... 
there is this confidence that in your left hand, in the secular realm, you can have resources. And in fact, God has specifically given to Christian leaders those resources. But now when it comes to the right hand kingdom, the kingdom of the spirit, we must all have a spiritual poverty that recognizes in humility, we need a savior. And so then God skip down to, he has this great quote, we are not to run away from property, house, home, wife, and children, wandering around the countryside as a burden to other people. God does not want such crazy saints. And that quote is specifically speaking to the radical reformers. His preface before this quote is referencing what the radical reformers are encouraging and expecting people to do. Yeah, and there's just like the mendicant uh, monks, they're, they're expecting everybody else to take care of them. And Luther is saying, no, that's not the way Christians are supposed to behave. There's an, uh, a gift that every Christian has been given to care for their family, to care for their community, to contribute to the world that they live in. And if you reject that gift... You're not being more Christian. In fact, you are creating a burden that God hasn't asked you to create. So now let's move on to this next idea that's in this. Which uh, is the promise of, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's a great, wonderful, glorious promise here that we are willing to be poor here. We're not going to be poor here just meaning poverty, like not have any goods, but we're not going to pay attention to our temporal goods as our is our blessing. We're going to have beautiful, glorious, great, eternal possession in heaven. This willingness to be poor, this willingness to be rich, this willingness to have whatever you have in this earth, but always to know it has nothing compared to being in the promises of God. And, and it all comes out of faith. So Luther says, where there is no faith, there is no, there, there the kingdom of heaven will also remain outside. But there will remain only scratching and scraping, quarrels and riots over temporal goods. So what he's saying is that if we if we if we if we approach our temporal goods as Christians, we're not going to have that that anxiety about our money. We're not going to have that anxiety about what we have. We're not going to attack others over what they have. We're not going, there's yeah. going to be, he's, he'll call back to this in, in later be to when he's calling talking about blessed are the peacemakers. And he, he writes about this sense that yes, there are just wars. Yes, you could be justified to go to war, but do you have to, can you pull back and say, is this necessary? There are moments when in poverty of, I can say I can have this or not have it. I'm still fine. Right. And and say example in the comment about blessed are the peacemakers, how Luther will do kind of that call back to what he's already preached. So you get this sense that as he's preaching these sermons on Wednesday nights, that he has a consistent audience, that he's expecting that people who are hearing this week also were present last week. So we could go on and on about this because Luther just keeps going on. And, but let's and, go to the next section. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So this is this this is Christ's second attack on the way the world thinks. Luther points out that, that we are always seeking seeking to have joy and happiness and to be have life without trouble. And he says that is not the way of the Christian. The Christian should count on experiencing a life of sorrow and mourning in the world. This is another attack in a way on the modern prosperity gospel or that thought as well that you can leverage God to get into ease. That if I do this and I do this and I do this, then essentially I've got a nice soft pillow to lay my head on. And he's going to point out that whatever happens, there are going to be those moments of difficulty 
Uh, but you can be better equipped for these moments knowing that you will be comforted in those moments. And Luther backs this up with Christ's comment in Luke 6.25 where he says, Woe unto you that laugh and have a good time now, for you shall have to mourn and weep. So, And then he points out the straw man. Yeah, again, which gonna... isn't a straw man. What are we to do then? Is everybody to be damned who laughs, sings, dances, dresses well, eats and drinks? Puritans probably would have said yes. They should all be damned. <laughs> yes. That, that the Puritans, by the way, are radical reformers, and they are actually. And so Luther takes now he goes back and he backs up saying no. That's not. We can laugh. We can we can rejoice. We're, and he, he backs it up with with uh, with scripture. And he says in Philippians four four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Romans twelve fifteen, rejoice with those who rejoice. So how do we do this? What is the art of blessed are those who mourn? He points to Philippians four eleven when Paul says, I have learned the art wherever I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound in any and all circumstances. I have learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. And so Luther kind of pulling this quote into this argument of the middle road that he's constantly showing in his Beatitudes. He said, so also a man is said to mourn and be sorrowful, not if his head is always drooping and his face is always sour, sour and never smiling, but if he does not depend on having a good time and living it up the way the world does. So Luther then gives a real good example of all the powerful lords that got together at the Diet of Augsburg, uh, good Christian princes. So he's preaching 1530 to 1532. Uh, and it just happened, right? So June 25th, 1530 is the Diet of Augsburg. So this sermon series is right in the contemporary time of the Diet of Augsburg. And, and so he, he talks about how, how these guys were, were put in a position in, in all this, this pomp and circumstance, you know, and, and they were living it up sort of, quote unquote, but they were, they were mourning because at the same time they, had to, they were in the middle of all these arguments and they were trying to fight for their lives to be Christian. And they were willing to go through that mourning because they knew they would be comforted by the gospel. If you uh, are like a party animal and you go to a, a party on a Friday night and you think this party is only a success if I finish happy and, and, and be filled with joy, then that party has such weight that it has to carry. Otherwise, your whole night is a disappointment. But if you can go to a party and say whether I'm happy, sad, mad or glad, whatever it is, it's still going to be a good night. Then you're free to see and enjoy the night. When we create so much pressure on this world to accomplish everything to make us happy, uh, the world can't carry that weight. So Luther says, therefore, simply begin to be a Christian and you will soon find out what it means to mourn and be sorrowful. If you can do nothing else, then get married, settle down, and make a living in faith. Love the word of God and do what is required of you in your station. Then you will experience, both from your neighbors and in your own household, that things will not go as you wish. So I've mentioned before, I don't know, to in the podcast, but certainly to some friends, uh, Mockingbird uh, Ministries has a book, uh, Secularosity. And in that book, it talks about one of the dangers of secularism today is this lie that happiness is just around the corner. You just need a little bit more. You just need this. You just need that. And everything will work out. And this idea of secularosity is this idea that the world can give that to you. 
You and just can't. Gotta, you, you just got to try a little bit harder. But he says, if you're willing to mourn in this world, if you're willing to be sad that not everything works out, you're actually going to be comforted because now you're going to be directed to God to find that which brings eternal joy. Then Luther actually spends a little bit of time singling out the burden of being a pastor in their station in, their station in the world. And he says, especially the dear pastors must learn this well and be disciplined daily with all sorts of envy, hatred, scorn, ridicule, ingratitude, contempt, and blasphemy. In addition, they have to stew inside so that their heart and soul is pierced through and continually tormented. Have to. They have to go through sorts of envy, hatred, scorn, ridicule, and gratitude, contempt. There's all these sorts of uh, moments when a pastor has to recognize this world's not going to always love me. Right. But I still must preach the word. That if a pastor can push through that envy and hatred and scorn, continue to preach the word, then he's no longer seeking the the pleasures of this world to satisfy him, he's confident that the Lord will bring that. Yeah, that law and gospel is a, is a tough mix. That's a, that's a tough mix for some folks to swallow. So uh, it just goes on. I'll, I'll have one more quote from Luther that I thought was good here. Those who mourn this way are entitled to have fun and take it wherever they can so that they do not completely collapse from sorrow. Christ also adds these words and promises this consolation so that they do not despair in their sorrow, nor let the joy of their heart be taken away and extinguished altogether, but mix this mourning with comfort and refreshment. So uh, the idea of mix mourning with comfort and refreshment, that's how you drink grief. That's how you drink uh, what the bartender serves you of sadness, because you know there's comfort and refreshment in our Savior. And there's comfort and refreshment specifically in Christ's words here. So we're talking about comfort and refreshment <laughs> and mixed drinks. Uh, we don't have a mixed drink, but we do have a beer. And this beer right here is produced by Upper Hand Brewery, uh, Escanaba, Michigan. Larry Bell of uh, Bell's Brewery started this kind of boutique brewery up there in the UP. They produce the UPA, which is an Upper Peninsula Ale, a traditional American pale ale. That's what Mike and I are drinking today. They also produce the Laughing Fish. It's a northern golden ale and we'll have to do that one next time yeah we can continue on the series and then they have an ipa and the ipa is also um well just what it is as it says it's an ipa um they're all just nice simple beers with solid flavor Uh, this is a this is an excellent beer I, i actually went on to beer advocate beforehand and it was it got real good reviews you know Pretty consistently, I think, out of roughly four out of five stars. And that's, I, I, I'm really enjoying this. This is a nice, mild IPA. And this is a moment of progress for Grace on Tap as a podcast as well, because we have been given this beer to review. We did not purchase this beer ourselves. <laughs> and uh, so Mike was earlier talking about how you measure a good beer. You take the taste divided by the <laughs> oh, cost. Right. Yeah, T- taste divided by qu- cost. And you know, because this was cost of zero, it's it is a great beer. Then. It's infinitely good. <laughs> it is infinitely good. I love that equation. But in fact, we do appreciate uh, the, the gift of the beer to review. And uh, Upper Hand Brewery, uh, they have uh, they have their brewery in Escanaba out by the airport. They also have a tap room. They do special events. I haven't been to their brewery, but now I have another reason to go to the UP. Yeah, it makes two of us. 
Mm. It's right, a really so good, it is it a is really a good, good beer, beer. <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> uh, that's 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 not because it was free. I mean, it's no, it's it is a good, good beer. beer compared to last time when we reviewed that blueberry beer, and we're like, yeah, we both have some left. <laughs> yeah, what does know, that tell us? I I, I I took it home, and Maria loves it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you like it, Maria. <laughs> okay, let's keep going here. Next beatitude: Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. And this is where I think Luther does the best job describing two kingdoms. Because he'll talk about uh, nobles, those in government who carry the power of the sword. And their activity in the world must be filled with courage, must be filled with confidence. And they have to work in such a way that people know that they have authority to do what they're doing. But then you have this beatitude that says, Blessed are the meek. So Luther really, I think, especially in this beatitude, helps understand what it means to be a servant in the kingdom of the sword and also to be a servant in the kingdom of the spirit. Luther starts this out sort of by saying meek is equivalent to poor, which, you know, he spent a little bit of time on that. We're going to just sort of skip past that part. That's that was sort of interesting. That's kind of a callback. That's a, an example, I think, of a sermon series where you, you preach something else and you're kind of bringing forward uh, something you've already said. Maybe that's what this was, where it was part of a sermon. So let's let, let's skip forward to the, 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 the meek. According to Luther, is the spiritually poor that are given uh, responsibilities for families, land, and other things. And But then he says, he doubles back and he looks at the word meek again. And he says, nothing. so meek has nothing to do with the responsibilities we carry in our vocation. If we're a prosecutor, for example, we need to be strict and stern according to the law. Luther says, I have often said that we must sharply distinguish between these two, the office and the person. The man who is called Martin is a man quite different from the one who is called doctor or preacher. So in his role as doctor, Martin Luther has in other spots spoken that he is a protector of the church. Um, he is one that is called by God to preserve and to present the gospel. And he will do it uh, with very flowery language. And, and that is not him disobeying this beatitude. That's, in fact, what he sees as a responsibility of his vocation to show the strength of his witness to the gospel. But he says, as Martin, as the man, I will be meek. And here there is this confidence of in his responsibility to the family, to the land, to others, uh, as a person, he will have a certain poverty of being able to listen and to see what others say and do. And so, but then when it comes to his office, he's strict and stern. And it's sort of interesting. There's a, I, I was doing a little research on Luther, and it's not in the notes here, but uh, when you know, when Karl Stott found himself in trouble. You know, Luther spoke really hard against Karlstadt, you know, after he joined the Radical Reformation. But when Karlstadt found himself in trouble, Luther welcomed him back into his home. I think uh, Luther's wife was the godmother for Karlstadt's child. It, it was, you know, they, they, they helped each other out as, as, as Christians. And this isn't... Luther being a hypocrite of like being really stern and hard in one respect and then soft and kind in another. Um, he's doing the responsibility he has as a servant in the kingdom of the sword uh, to bring about um, 
uh, a clarity of the responsibility of the church and its role uh, to be a doctor of the church. Um, and then in the kingdom of the spirit, he's also presenting and preserving the gospel. So he says, uh, you know, and if you're in an office or a governmental position, he says, we must be sharp and strict. We must get angry and punish for here. We must do what God puts into our hand and commands us to do for his sake. But in other relations and what is unofficial, let everyone learn for himself to be meek toward everyone else. That is not to deal with his neighbor unreasonably, hatefully or vengefully. He finishes it up by saying, this does not forbid the government to punish and to wreak vengeance in the name of God, but neither does it grant license to a wicked judge, burgomaster, lord, or prince to confuse these two persons and to reach beyond his official authority through the personal malice or envy or hate or hostility, as commonly happens under the cloak and cover of his office and legal right. So maybe so, you could think about what expectation do you have of a police officer? When you meet a police officer, I expect him to uphold the law to enact justice and to preserve and protect people. But if a police officer were to act beyond that office to bring vengeance and uh, revenge and uh, yeah, severe personal. Pun- personal attack, that's where you see things. So talking about judges, uh, Luther says, if the true person between, beneath the judge's robe is meek, he will not be as tempted to overreach in his official capacity. He will only execute the law as much as the law requires. So Luther says we can take two roads. We can we can be meek and peaceful with what we've got, overlooking as much as we possibly can when our neighbor inflicts some sort of injury on us, either by mistake or maliciously, or we can argue with everybody over everything. And Luther says, just take a look at the queer characters who are always arguing and squabbling about property and other things. They refuse to give in to anybody, but insist on rushing everything through headlong, regardless of whether they're quarreling or squabbling costs them more than they could ever gain. So what is the benefit? What comes of all this? Ultimately, if people are so busy with arguing and squabbling, they will, in the end, lose. They'll lose their land, their servants, their house and home. They will get the unrest that they have produced and the bad conscience that has come with their overreach will be thrown in. And God, though, will add his blessing to it saying, do not be meek then so that you may not keep your precious land nor enjoy your morsel in peace. Um, so Luther says, listen, he understands that we're, we're, we're Christians in the world and there's only so much we can take. There is some, supposed to be justice. There's right and wrong. There's a neighbor that's inflicted too much on you. So he says about your neighbor, if your neighbor's malicious attacks gets too bad. I wish you would define what that means, too bad. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> but when it's too bad, when your neighbor... When, when you just can't take it. When, you just, when no. the overreach has become an abuse of your person. Yeah. He says, then you can take it to the court. And he says, the government has the charge not to permit the harsh oppression of the innocent. God will also overrule so that his word and ordinance may abide and you may inherit the land according to this promise. Thus, you will have the rest and God's blessing, but your neighbor neighbor will have unrest together with God's displeasure and curse. So, and then Luther talks a little bit about Psalm 37 and he says, that's a great place to go. And we're not going to, we could go on and on again. This is another area, but you sort of, I hope, get the idea. Are the two kingdoms in the kingdom of the left hand, uh, if your vocation calls for you to bring about justice in this world, do it with courage, with confidence, but let that heart of meekness 
keep your morality in check and that you don't overreach your position and take it personal. All right. So now the next beatitude. Uh, Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. So Luther begins here first by taking a stand against perfectionism. And he says, as soon as there is even a minor flaw, all mercy is gone and there is nothing but fuming and fury. You'll see this, I think, this is an attack on the radical reformers who are expecting um, uh, a perfect righteousness of people. And they're trying to lead people towards uh, perfection here in this life through uh, doing things perfectly. And that leads us to essentially ultimately attack each other because you're not powerful enough. You're not perfect enough. You're not... No one's ever going to meet that standard. Well, and you see it all the time, right? You see, like the the people who protest uh, in the street, you know, attacking uh, uh, you know, this pe- big system. Yeah, when one person has made a mistake, right? And, and there are sometimes systemic errors, but sometimes things just are. Sometimes things go wrong. Somebody, some, people make mistakes, and you know. So Luther says, true holiness is merciful and sympathetic, but all that false holiness can do is to rage and fume. Yet it does so, as they boast, out of zeal for justice. So this is the the cover for this perfectionism. I have a zeal for justice. And I, I like that recognition that he has, that false holiness produces rage and fumes. This idea that uh, if I am falsely holy... Uh, then I am holy only by making myself better than other people. Right, right. And then Luther goes on, he says, If a man deals with his neighbor in an effort to help and correct him in his station and way of life, he should still take care to be merciful and to forgive, not not give in to the gratification of your own malice and anger. For you are righteous enough to deal in a friendly and gentle manner with the man who is willing to improve himself, and you tolerate and endure his fault or weakness until he comes around. Then Luther has a second interpretation of blessed are the merciful. And this is talking not about your mercy towards your neighbor who's not perfect enough, but now this is mercy about how we care for the poor. So throughout this section, it sort of sounds like Luther's saying that only the poor are truly merciful and the rich and powerful tend to be judgmental. But, and if you read through it, I mean, I was reading through this, like, where are you going with this, Luther? But then he changes gears very quickly And he finally pulls out what he's looking at. And he says, at the present time, the world is full of people among the nobles and city people and peasants who sin very grievously against the dear gospel. Not only do they refuse to give support or help to poor ministers and preachers. This is going back to his concern for ministers and preachers. But beside, they commit theft and torment against it wherever they can and act as if they meant to starve it out and chase it out of the world. He is here recognizing that, and this is something that many pastors will recognize in their own churches, that the poor are often the most sacrificial in their giving. And the rich are judgmental of those who they think aren't giving enough, but they themselves... They're a little... Are, they're, are, they're, they're a little, uh, I don't know what the word, I, I don't want to say stingy, but... <laughs> thrift. They're thrift. <laughs> okay. So, so that's, he, he, Luther finishes off with this warning from, from James to, for judgment is, is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. So all of this is part of the, the context of the kingdom of the sword and the kingdom of the spirit, which is really the primary focus of, of Luther's commentary on the Beatitudes. You can go on on your own and you can read what he writes about 
Uh, blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are those uh, as people revile you. Uh, but we're going to conclude our, our study right now, right? Well, that's actually the next we get with part two. We get two. more? Yeah, we're getting, we uh, get more. We get more. We're going to cover the next four. This is oh, so what a joy. That's why we're going to look at the Upper Hand Brewery for Laughing Fish, the Northern Golden Ale. That's it's right. A, a series. It's a series. And we get both of them are sponsored. So, so, we're, so we're, you know, this is, this is going to, we're going to finish it off. We just did the first four this time, and then we're going to carry it forward next time and finish off the Beatitudes. Maybe next time after that, we might touch on the Magnificat. We'll, we'll see. We're on our way towards that. Yeah. Again, volume 21 from Luther's Works is our source material for today. Uh, cph.org is a place where you can go and purchase any of the Luther's works. You can also probably find them on eBay or on Amazon, uh, but Concordia Publishing House is the They current. run about 35 bucks. You can sign up for a subscription for any of the new Luther's works that are coming out, but then you would still have to go and purchase the previous 70 on your own. Okay, okay. So... Um, you know, and that's pretty much it for today. I want to say thanks to, to everybody for, uh, especially thanks for, for the beer. Uh, that, that's fantastic. Um, recognition, we already talked about uh, uh, volume, 21. volume 21. So that if you if, want to get in a hold of us, contact us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Our website, graceontap-podcast.com is where we post all the new episodes with uh, some artwork and some brief introductory material. Then you can also catch us on our Facebook page. Uh, just search Grace on Tap and you'll find us there. Uh, and if you want, would really appreciate any reviews you might put on uh, iTunes. It does help us get the word out. And share when uh, we ever are posting a new episode on Facebook, you could share to your friends that you're listening to Grace on Tap and maybe include a picture of you drinking an Upper Peninsula UPA. Perfect. The, traditional American pale ale. It is a very good beer. Cheers. Cheers to you as well. Blessings, everybody.